Good morning, Bethel. If you want to turn in your Bible, or if, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, there's one in the pew in front of you, hopefully, unless you're sitting up in some of these front rows. What Russell was saying is for the sake of the kids not using hymnals as uh, weapons, I think they removed them for VBS week. So um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's found, our text for this morning is found on page 1009. So it's Hebrews chapter 13. And it's just one verse this morning, verse 4. Um, we're actually going to start a two-part series this week, so this week and next week, on Christian sexuality. So um, obviously in our culture, um, there's lots of confusion, lots of issues. In a sense, our culture just runs on lust, in a sense. And so definitely always an important topic to address. Um, it always has been an issue. It always will be until Jesus comes back and sets things right um, we are all broken and in need of redemption in the realm of sexuality. But certainly in our day and age, there's some special and particular challenges that we need to address um, and just see what God's Word says about it and think clearly and ask for grace um, to live out God's wisdom. So this week, we're going to focus on marriage from Hebrews 13.4. And then next week, we're going to look more broadly at issues of sexuality from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 20. Um, so we want to start very positively, although there's some warnings in this passage, very positively to see what marriage is all about, what sex is for, why God created it, and to place it in its proper context. Um, so this is a great passage from which to do that. So let's pray. Um, let's, actually, let's just read this verse together, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive right in. So Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for your great love that we have sung about. <clears throat> you are love. And you are the standard, the source of all true, pure love in every form. You created us out of love. You created us for loving relationship with you and with each other, with others. You created the loving gift of marriage. And Lord, as a result of sin and the fall, we look for love in all the wrong places. And we are so spring-loaded to stiff-arm your wisdom and goodness. To resist your definitions and descriptions of love and to listen to what our culture around us or our deceitful hearts tell us about what love is and what it feels like, what it looks like. And we need your grace and we thank you that you are a gracious 
loving God, that even though we have so oftentimes spurned your wisdom, you continue to pursue us in stubborn love, ultimately at the cross, so that we can be cleansed and washed clean from all of our defilement, all of our foolishness, all of our um, mistakes, and you can reform and reshape us in accord with your wisdom and design for sexuality and for marriage. So Lord, would you please give us ears to hear, give us soft hearts to receive your word, and shape us so that our marriages and our singleness and our sexuality in the church would be a bright and radiant reflection of your goodness and your grace and your love and your wisdom. We need your help, and I ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there's an uh, outline in your bulletin that may be helpful um, as we walk through this passage. Looks like this. Um, so first point, hold marriage in high honor. Um, it's a short verse. It's a simple verse. We're going to let it, in a sense, be the outline, um, but so important for all of us, all of us, regardless of our life situation, this is an important word for us from God. So let marriage be held in honor among all. Um, in the original, held in honor is actually front-loaded for emphasis. In other words, this is really important. Hold it in high honor. This is a precious, valuable thing. So first, what is marriage? Um, we can't assume definitions in our day and age. So marriage is a lifelong, monogamous, covenant union between a man and a woman. Okay, that's God's design, and it's good. Marriage is a lifelong, monogamous, covenant union between a man and a woman. So, um, in certain, plenty of cultures and times, we wouldn't have to you know, have a little parenthesis here, but we do today in our day and age, in our state, in our time. Part of what it means for us in the church to hold marriage in high honor is to not accept its redefinition. Okay, so you all know, I'm sure, on May 7th, 2013, Delaware became the 11th state. I think there's 19 or 20 now to legalize so-called gay marriage. And I say so-called because to call the wedding of two men or two women marriage is to redefine an institution that we actually don't have the right to redefine. Okay, now, when I say don't accept its redefinition, I'm not saying that you should go on a rampage at work or in your neighborhood. Okay, no sandwich boards, no vitriol, you know, no crass jokes, but also no superficial engagement that can only say, like we as a church need to say more than just, what's this world coming to? We've got to have more to say than that. Okay, what I am saying is that we can't silently, passively submit to the redefinition and therefore devaluation of marriage. If we just kind of sit back passively, we're trivializing and trifling with an institution that's invested with a tremendous honor by God who designed it, who created it. 
okay? So we need to understand these issues so that we can speak intelligently and winsomely and persuasively about what's really at stake in our world today. So one way to do so is to understand how marriage has been redefined. This is a little excursus here at the beginning, then we're going to get into marriage for you and me. This still relates to us, but um, this is because we live in a wider culture, and we can't just stick our heads in the sand. We can't just retreat. Um, oftentimes, we're going to need to be able to be equipped to respond um, and to speak up for, for marriage as it's been defined for millennia. So the popular support for the redefinition of marriage was actually seeded decades ago. Seeded like seeds in the ground, okay? It's not simply the fruit of the LBGTQ lobby, you know, though that's disproportionately strong. Think about this. When marriage is no longer defined in terms of comprehensive covenantal union, which is inherently ordered, doesn't mean that every married couple will have kids, but a relationship between a man and a woman is inherently ordered for procreation and for the sharing of family life. Okay? So if it's no longer deter, uh, defined in terms of comprehensive covenantal union, and it's redefined to be an emotional union, special emotional union, okay? think of how many divorces have ended because I just don't love you anymore. So if, if you see that kind of culture, the instability of marriage is actually part of your new definition. Like if you redefine it that way as emotional union, the seeds of its instability are actually already sown. It's like perforating the paper of the marriage license, like to tear it in half. So marriage itself applies the pressure to any relational bond. What are you going to get? A lot of torn marriages. So do you see how this is a setup for gay marriage in our day and age? Two men, two women can have an emotional union. So that way was paved decades ago, and it'll obviously be interesting to see where it leads. If marriage is redefined as emotional union, then how is it different from companionship? Why not three people? Why not good friends? Must it be sexual? Why not a brother and a sister? What if the brother-sister roommate lobby gets strong enough? And I don't say that flippantly or jokingly. I'm just saying we have to be able to ask questions. Okay, in, in the book, What is Marriage? Um, it's a helpful book on the nature of marriage. Uh, the authors write this, Assuming a general policy of recognizing committed twosomes, should the benefits that, and they have this little illustration of Oscar and Alfred, should the benefits that Oscar and Alfred receive depend on whether their relationship is or can be presumed to be sexual? Would it not be patently unjust if the state withheld benefits from them only because they were not having sex with each other? A Syracuse law professor has argued that it would, that it would be, that the state should recognize social units made up of committed friends. Do you see how the redefinition just starts to open Pandora's box to all kinds of things, okay? And that Syracuse law professor who studied, you know, BA at Duke, JD at UPenn, PhD at University of Michigan. So this is not some, you know, 
marginal person off on the side, he teaches family law and civil liberties at Syracuse. Okay? Now, <clears throat> what I'm doing is kind of dealing with the reasonableness of the redefinition, the unreasonableness of the, of the redefinition. There's lots of ways that we could kind of, by reason and natural law, address these issues um, and, and show how this is a, a dangerous trajectory and so forth. Um, but rather than focusing on what marriage shouldn't be this morning, we actually need to focus our attention on what it should be, on what the real thing is. Okay? Now, as soon as I say that, and as soon as the topic is marriage, some of you, um, you know, might think, well, you're defining it, what, what's wrong with emotional union? Is that a bad thing? You're saying the feelings don't matter? Okay, maybe especially younger folks, like my age and younger, can react that way. That's not the point. I'm not encouraging stoicism. The Bible doesn't encourage stoicism or kind of this cold duty that may have characterized your parents' marriage or grandparents' marriage. Um, you may just not have known their marriage very well. Let's just say that. Or it could have been cold and dutiful, and you could react against that. But just be careful not to overswing. You know, we can see, well, you have these people that say, well, feelings don't matter. Love is a decision. And then, oh, I don't like that cold kind of dutiful thing. I want a passionate thing. And you overswing, and then you want to redefine. And you don't realize what you're losing in the process. Listen to the wisdom that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave when he was in prison I'm not going to explain who he was, but he, um, some of you will recognize his name. He said this, Marriage is more than your love for each other. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is, is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status, an office. Listen to this parallel. It's really helpful. Just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. And then he says this, As you gave the ring to another, so love comes from you, but marriage from above, from God. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on the marriage that sustains your love. Another way to say that would be to say that it is the covenant of marriage that sustains the love, not the love that sustains the covenant. Okay, so important to understand. Given our fickle wills and our fluctuations of emotion and affection, doesn't mean that you pretend to love each other when you don't feel like it. It means you fight to love each other when you don't feel like it. Do you see the world of difference between pretending and fighting? Faking and fighting? You fight because there is an underlying covenant. So it's the covenant that, that will push you not to fake a happy marriage, but to fight for a happy marriage. So the covenant sustains the love. Now, we have to see the main ultimate reason why marriage is so honorable and why we must hold it in high 
honor. It's because of what it's intended to reflect. And here's where we have to step back from Hebrews 13 and see God's purpose as it's revealed through the whole of the biblical story. There's this tremendous amount of glory that's invested in this institution that's designed and created by God. Why did God make marriage? What's the point? Well, Dwight read from Ephesians 5. Okay, so think about two of the verses right at the end of that passage. If you want to flip back there to Ephesians 5, one of the most important passages on marriage in the Bible. It's on page 979 if you're (coughs) looking in the pew Bible there. Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul is quoting Genesis 2. This mystery is profound. This two shall become one flesh. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What? Here's the point. Marriage is precious and honorable. It's valuable and it's intended to be a reflection of the ultimate loving relationship. It's God's idea. It's his creation. It's his gift. So he quotes Genesis 2. But here's the thing. God didn't make Adam and Eve and give them this gift of marriage and say, oh, wow, check that out. That's a great thing. I think I'll pattern my relationship with, you know, Christ and the church after that. It's actually the other way around. From all eternity, his plan was to have a special people, his bride, And as a result of that, he created marriage to be a little foreshadowing, a little picture, a little reflection of the ultimate love story. So marriage is intended, this mystery is actually Christ in the church. Marriage is a type, it's a pointer. It's supposed to be like a little parable, like a little living parable, a signpost, a scale model of the ultimate marriage, the ultimate wedding of the ages. Okay, so, so Christian marriage is supposed to reflect Christ in the church. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, wives, here's your role. Husbands, here's your role. Because you're supposed to play out the drama. You're supposed to reflect the gospel. So can you just, isn't that amazing the amount of glory that God has chosen to invest in this institution? That he would he would say, this is, supposed, this is made to reflect the gospel, my glory, my love. And obviously, if there's that much glory invested, Satan is going to hate marriage, and he's going to set his crosshairs on marriage, and he's going to want to, to twist it and parody it because he wants to smear the name of Jesus. So it's this prime target He doesn't want marriages, Christian marriages, to tell this parable in a winsome, beautiful way. He wants them to mock what he hates. He wants them to tell lies about the truth of the gospel. Okay, so you can see it's so honorable. It's such a precious thing because of what it's supposed to reflect. And so we must deal with it in honor, and care for it as a precious, valuable thing. So think about it. Fighting for something that is precious or someone who is precious is beautiful, right? It's just right. 
when someone is worth a lot, they should be fought for. On the other hand, indifference or a kind of a lackadaisical posture towards something or someone that's precious is ugly. Okay, so we should honor marriage, hold it up because it's intended to reflect the ultimately valuable reality. God himself in Christ loving us, laying down his life for us so that we will have his love forever. Okay, so we honor marriage in the public square. Talked about that. We're going to need wisdom and grace to do that. Given the pressure in our culture, there's plenty of pressure to dishonor God and marriage. Maybe because we'd be silent, we shrink back, we're afraid of, of rocking the boat or being rejected or whatever. We might lie, we might compromise, we might just remain silent. But there's also another way to dishonor marriage, and that's when we accept our own marriage that dishonors marriage. Okay, we need to honor marriage. How are we going to do this? You know, Hebrews 13, 4 clearly says to us, let marriage be held in honor among all. How are we going to do that? Well, we honor marriage by honoring our marriages and honoring our spouses. So the way that you and I do that, we'll either treat marriage as this beautiful story that's intended to reflect. We want to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ in our marriages for the glory of His name, for the good of our spouse, for the good of our children, for the good of our church community as we model this story, this drama Or our marriages are going to actually call the gospel into question. They're going to smear the name of Jesus. Okay, so what good is it going to be if we here at Bethel talk, talk, talk about marriage and Christ in the church and traditional marriage and definitions and whatever if none of the marriages in the church are healthy or beautiful? Okay, what what do our children think of Christian marriage from our marriages? If you have kids... What do your kids think about marriage from your marriage? What are they going to say to the pre-marriage counselor when the pre-marriage counselor asks, you know, so what what do you want to emulate from your parents' marriage and what do you want to maybe avoid? What will our children think of Christian marriage from our marriages? Does that matter? Obviously, I think we would say, yes, it matters. Well, let's put our money and prayer and effort and time and energy and thought and planning where our mouth is. We have got to hold high, in high honor, Christian marriage. Okay, so some of us, listen, I I don't know. We've got the whole gamut here, people in all kinds of different life situations, and there's a word here for each and every one of us. But some of you have given in. And you've even gotten kind of sarcastic and maybe even cynical toward marriage at some times. Maybe it's just internal, but it breaks out sometimes in your speech. You're the type who says, you know, to the smitten gauge couple or the, the newlyweds, just wait. Would you stop that, please? Like, I'm dead serious, and I love you. I mean, come on. Seriously, we, we need to hold it up in high honor. Don't say, just wait. Are you just capitulating, throwing up your hands? It's inevitable. It'll just be miserable. Just wait. No. This is something precious and valuable, and we need to honor it. We need to fight for it. 
because we want it to be beautiful as God intended. It's a good gift. He's such a good creator, a good father. He gives good gifts. We need to trust him. They're not going to be perfect, but they can be sweet and beautiful, even in the way that we repent and forgive each other and are gracious and kind and merciful, just like God has been with us. So don't be the one who's, you know, wistful leading into this inward bitterness as you see young married couples who are happy and playful and affectionate. At wedding showers, don't speak with sarcasm, but rather sweet honor. So for Christ's sake, think about it. For Christ's sake, for His name's sake, for His glory, hold marriage in high honor. Bethel, all of us need to own this. Okay, do you think God is interested in, willing to help and give you grace if that's your heart, even if your marriage is a mess? If you're a Christian, God is in the equation. Okay, the same God who created out of nothing can awaken love where it seems like it's completely gone. There's no embers to even stoke. This is the God who takes spiritually dead people and their trespasses and sins and makes them alive together with Christ. That's the one to whom you pray for your marriage. So you can ask and seek and knock on behalf of your dead, cold, unhappy marriage. Okay, listen. I know some of you, maybe many of you who are married, really wish you had a good marriage and you don't. Okay, so this could be painful. You don't know what to do. There's hope here. God's in the equation. For others, it may be painful because you're no longer married. Your divorce was really painful. The wounds still hurt. Okay? Your pain may be of another kind. Maybe you're a widower or a widow, and that amputation still hurts, and it's still sensitive. For some, this is a topic that's sensitive and painful because you really wish that you were married, and you're not, and you wish the church didn't focus so much on married couples and families, and yes, the church is oftentimes insensitive to singles. And I'm not wanting to approach this insensitively by talking about marriage today. The reason why I think this is so appropriate is because this actually has a word to all of us. We all, do you see the language there? Whether you're single, divorced, happily married, unhappily married, widowed, whether you experience heterosexual or same-sex attraction, this text applies to you. The text says something to everyone. Look at the language. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Speak into the church, and he says, we all need to own this. We all need to hold it up in high honor. Whether we're in it, whether we wish we were in it, where we used to be in it, whether we made mistakes, you can all, we can all hold it up in high honor and support it and pray for the health and the strength and the purity and the beauty of the marriages in this church family. So the second line is vital also for all of us to hear. Point number two, let the marriage bed be undefiled. So guard the sanctity of sex. Listen, every command of God is a call to trust Him. If if we trust God, if we believe He knows what's best, we won't resist His commands. We'll welcome them. Okay, Even when, and maybe especially when they cut against the grain of our desires, which is going to happen often because we're sinners, we're fallen. So God created us. He's the designer. He created us as sexual beings. That's God's idea. We'll talk about that more next week. He knows 
what our sexuality is for because he made us. He created marriage. He created sex for marriage. So we need to listen to him and heed his word in regard to sexuality and marriage. So listen, this is a wise and loving command. And it doesn't matter if you're single and you're wrestling with, you know, out-of-control desires. If you're married and you're wrestling with out-of-control desires at times, this command to hold it in high honor, treat it preciously, and to guard the sanctity of sex, whether you're inside or outside of marriage, it's just like the command, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We know that was a loving prohibition. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. But temptation comes, you go, ooh, that looks really good to eat. So, in that moment, is God trying to oppress you? Is he trying to steal your fun? Is he trying to be a cosmic killjoy? No. So this means if you're not married, let's just be really clear, premarital sex is sin. It's wrong. It's against God's design. And I feel like I have to say that especially to my generation and younger, Christian premarital sexual ethics isn't... I heard somebody talking about this recently. I thought, wow, that's actually really important to, to say it that way. It's not like card playing or wearing shorts on Sunday or going to the movies. You know, there's some stuff that gets tied up with tradition that is traditional, and it gets attached to the Bible. And then people, like, react to that, and they go, well, that was nuts, you know, that's just tradition, and then they go over here. There's a lot of people my age and younger in the church that feel that way about sexuality and premarital sex, at least in their actual life. That's the way they're operating, okay? Card playing, that's tradition, okay? Saying that that's wrong or going to a movie is wrong. But this is God's loving wisdom, okay? We need to trust Him. Don't trust the narratives and the promises that our culture is selling. Trust God. Rebel against that culture. So Hebrews 13.4 means if you are married, so it means if you're not married, premarital sex is sin. If you are married, that extramarital sex is sin. It's against God's design. So if any of you are in here, if you're toying with an affair, need to hear this, you need to heed it. If you're becoming emotionally tied to someone at work, it's not your spouse. If you're assuming your spouse and you're not investing in your marriage, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, okay? You need to heed this word. Guard, guard, guard. Sanctity of sex. This is God's loving wisdom. Trust Him. Don't trust the lies that your deceitful heart will, will tell you. So, Let's not defile the marriage bed. This is a holy thing. It's a beautiful thing. And it's good in its proper place. Okay? The marriage bed is not to be occupied by a parade of people, whether digital or actual. It's not a test drive. It's a place where a lifelong monogamous covenant union between a man and a woman is regularly replayed. It's, the, it's glue it's, in a sense, it's kind of like the Lord's Supper. Sex is like the Lord's Supper in marriage. A regular, tangible reminder of what is internally true in this marriage. Spiritually, emotionally, covenantally true. So, maybe you've heard someone liken sex to fire. Have you ever heard this illustration? So, fire is a wonderful gift. 
in its proper context. It can cook your burgers to perfection, you know, on the grill. It can warm you in your house, you know, the fireplace. You take that fire and put it on the carpet or in other places or, you know, out in a dry forest, and it wreaks all kinds of havoc. Okay, so let the marriage bed be undefiled. Premarital sex defiles the marriage bed. Extramarital sex defiles the marriage bed. Porn defiles the marriage bed, whether you're married or single. Listen to, this is a great quote by C.S. Lewis. He likens sex outside of marriage to tasting food without swallowing and digesting. He said this, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. Now suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Maybe you should put something else that you love on that plate. I don't even know what a mutton chop is. Um, Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? One critic said that if he found a country in which such striptease acts were popular, he would conclude that the people of that country were starving. So we need to guard the sanctity of sex. And that guardian role is for all of us, regardless of where we are in our life situation. I, I think this could be helpful. Do you see in, in Hebrews 13, 3, look at the verse that follows. It talks about money, sex and money. That's pretty relevant these days, right? So keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. What are the lies of our culture in regards to sex and money? It's interesting how the Bible puts those two together. Like in, in the Ten Commandments, Commandments 7 and 8, sex and, and money, basically. Or the text that Dwight read in Ephesians 5, covetousness, right after sexuality. So what does our culture say in regards to sex and money? It says, I will be happy if I just have more money or sex. And actually, neither are true. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 4, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation as a single man to be content. What's the secret of contentment? A little more? What's the secret of contentment? Does it come with fulfillment and release? Is that where it comes? He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a word for us as singles with our seething cauldron of desire at times. The solution is not a little more. The solution comes from clinging to Jesus and saying, I will only get through this with your strength, but with your strength, I can get through this. I can fight off this temptation. I can be content. So, guard the sanctity of sex, Bethel. Um, Just stop and consider the implications. Talk about this this afternoon. For flirting, does this have implications for flirting? Whether you are unmarried, whether you're a teenager, whether you're married at the office, here in the church, wherever it is, How about for prayer? Does it have implications for prayer, how we pray for each other? We are going to need grace and help here. How about, does this have implications for you maybe as, maybe you're a younger single girl and you want to honor the 
honor marriage, hold it high in, in high honor, and you want to offer to babysit for a date night so that that couple that you love will continue to just invest in their marriage and keep the, the fire hot. Maybe this has implications for understanding if a man isn't comfortable giving you a ride home as a woman. I don't know. There's a gazillion implications. So why is all this important? Um, look at the reasoning here. It's very sobering. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. That's actually oftentimes where the warning goes when it comes to sexuality. We're going to talk about this some more next week. It's the same reason in Ephesians 5. Did you catch it? As Dwight read it. So he says, sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you. Let there be no this, that, the other thing. Because you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral and impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. And don't let anyone deceive you with empty words, because because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Very sobering. We can't downplay this. That's the reasoning over and over again in the Bible. It's just like in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But lest you read this as honor marriage and sexuality or else, okay? Or, or as an inescapable condemnation for those of us who have sinned this way, maybe horribly so, let's make sure we put this little verse in the context of the whole book of Ephesians. So, two-minute two flyby. The book of Hebrews starts out with the utter supremacy of Jesus. Okay, he's better and greater than anything. And then in chapter 2, because these folks are starting to shrink back from him and kind of revert back to their old ways, the writer says, take care. Don't drift from what you've heard. And then he talks about how great Jesus is. He's better than everything. And then in chapter 12, he says, run with your eyes fixed on Jesus. So don't drift, run the race that's set before you. Okay? And in the middle, in the middle, there is all kinds of grace for sinners. Okay? So let's just look at one place here. Look at Hebrews 10 so that we see how we've got to approach this passage in the context of the gospel. In a sense, don't drift. Run into the holy of holies. Run right to God as your refuge and your strength. Run to Him as your Savior. And then from that place, you can run the race that's set before you with your eyes fixed on Jesus. So look at the gospel here in, in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, how can you have confidence to come to God if you have just sinned horribly sexually? Well, it's all because of the offering of Jesus to cleanse you from your sin, to pay for your sins. So if you come to him humbly acknowledging your sin, whether for the first time or for the 500th time, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, right into the presence of God, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We need that. 
You may need that. You may still be beating yourself up over something that you did 10 years ago. You need to run right into the, right into the throne room, right to the mercy seat where the blood of Jesus was shed to cleanse you so that you can run the race to set before you holding high in honor this gift of marriage. So let's not drift in unbelief, but run into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus being cleansed, and then from the mercy seat, we run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. The race that's set before us. What's the race that's set before you? For some of you, it's singleness. For some of you, it's your divorcee. For some of you, it's an unhappy marriage. For some of you, it's a happy marriage at this point. Run the race that's set before you with your eyes fixed on Jesus. And let's all run together praying for our single brothers and sisters, praying for our married brothers and sisters, praying for our kids in the formation and protection of their sexuality and identity, praying for those who are divorced and widowed. Let's run together, Bethel, holding marriage high in honor, guarding together the sanctity of sex. So as we close, I want you to just think, what does God want you to do? What's your response in regard to this passage? What does it look like for you to hold high in honor and to guard? Hold marriage high, guard the sanctity of sex. What's it going to look like? What do you need to repent of? What do you need to trust God for? I mean, if you are married, maybe you need to just really deal with how you have treated your spouse and dishonored them and dishonored marriage. And in a second, we're going to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, which is a great reminder that our faithfulness is ultimately possible because of His faithfulness, His covenant faithfulness. So listen, as kind of a closing exhortation, think of the race of sexuality, which is so hard. There's so many like places we can run off the rails and make a mess of things. Listen to Hebrews 12 and think about your race and how you need to respond. So just maybe close your eyes and listen to this word, and then we're going to sing. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, which includes people like David, who completely made a wreck sexually by sinning with Bathsheba, he has something to say. He is cheering us on. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. What are the weights? What are the sins that are keeping you from running this race, holding marriage high in honor and guarding the sanctity of sex? And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross as a single man till the day he died, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He did it for the joy set before him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted as you seek to fight this fight. 
In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the path of honoring marriage in your life, the race set before you might be filled with some hard things and some pain and some things you want to shrink back from. But know that God has loving purposes in it. Trust him. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and run. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The Lord wants to heal us sexually so that we can run as whole people the race that's set before us. Lord, please help us. I pray that you would, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything good that we may do your will with our marriages, with our sexuality, working in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, our eternal husband, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.